Welcome to season two of the Awkward Angler podcast. I'm your host, Erica Nelson. My pronouns are she and her. I am based in the ancestral lands of the Ute, currently known as Crested Butte, Colorado. This round of episodes, I'm connecting with folks in the fly fishing community that are taking actionable steps towards making the industry a more inclusive and equitable space. What is fly fishing for equity? And what are people, organizations, and brands doing about it? This show is for mature audiences. Instagram has been a great resource for me to connect with other anglers. And that's exactly how I met Emerald La Fortune. I found alignment in her post and content when it comes to topics of LGBTQ+, racial and social justice, as well as being a female in a male-dominated space, such as whitewater boating and fly fishing. Emerald is a writer, guide, and angler based in Idaho. This is also the first time we've actually connected outside of DMs and emails. I could get lost in her voice, her way with words, and hearing her stories and perspective. We likely could have spiraled off onto many topics, but today we discuss her identity, how the dominant culture can support women and LGBTQ plus voters and anglers. We also break down an article about fly names. I especially loved hearing her perspective and her ideas on navigating racial and social justice issues while identifying as a white woman. So often I hear from white folks that they just want to get it right or that they don't want to mess up. I find it important to elevate Emerald's voice because she struggles navigating those ideals as well. And we don't talk about it because it can get awkward. My name is Emerald LaFortune. Pronouns are she, her. I am a born and raised Idahoan who now lives in the eastern side of the state in this small little rural riverside town um, on traditional Shoshone Bannock lands. And I'm a writer and a whitewater and fly fishing guide here in Idaho, mostly on the Salmon River system. Um, I'm a community builder. I'm a Gemini, which is why my introductions are always like this long and all over the place. Um, and I think because we're discussing equity, particularly in the conversation, I want to note that I'm a white woman, uh, bisexual woman, uh, cisgender and femme. And I'm, you know, try to do sort of the learning and unlearning that every individual and community member should. Uh, and I'm also not a formal DEI educator. And I thought when I was thinking about intro, I was like, oh, I got to make sure and let folks know that, you know, I might be a little bit awkward as we discuss some of these topics. Um, I might, you know, not, not every idea or thought is sort of fully formed. And then I remembered that you've sort of baked that into the way you hold this space with Awkward Angler podcast and also the community. And so I was feeling really grateful that we sort of have that that space off the bat because I know these conversations get get messy and awkward and um, but can also be really generative and mm -hmm. and fun and exciting and expansive. So I'm really glad to be here today and glad to be on the podcast. Really awesome. Thank you. And thanks for acknowledging that. That's <clears throat> always the awkward and how can you actually be an expert in anything really? So <laughs> we're just stumbling our way through life and whatnot. And um, so tell me a little bit more about, you said something about your learning and unlearning. What does that look like for you? What does that mean to you? For me in particular, it's meant slowing down mm -hmm. a little bit, slowing down the pace at which I um, build relationships, the pace at which I approach my work, um, the pace at which I think I might know all I need to know about something. And I think for all of us, we all have different ways we use to sort of avoid the awkward and uncomfortable. For me in particular, pacing and stuffing too much in to a single day, a week, a month, a season is my go-to. Um, and for other folks, it might, it might be different. And really sitting with discomfort, like when, especially when someone who is in some sort of education space um, is bringing an idea or thought forward, or even a, a you know, an ask for an apology or a um, kind of a call out or a call in, being able to sit with that discomfort and self-reflect in that discomfort, um, learning how to apologize in a way that isn't shitty has been a really big part. Um, and also being willing to step outside, you know, I think I'm very steeped in sort of outdoor industry, fly fishing industry, whitewater industry, and it's taken stepping outside of those industries to really um, 
find the places that are that are often moving these conversations forward with the exception maybe of this space and a few others that have just sort of come online in the last couple of years. Yeah, great. It's a it's a skill and it's something that we don't practice often of just slowing down and um, reflecting as well. How have you made mistakes and how did you get to that point to understanding that apologies are, are not our forte? <laughs> mm-hmm. Gosh, I feel like there have been many. Um, you know, I think that so in the writing space, part of writing, especially in, you know, maybe the digital age where things are turning over more quickly is that you are, um, you know, putting forth this idea and you're asked to put it forth in a very like strong, cohesive, here's my thesis statement, this is what's wrong, this is what's right kind of way. And I think some of the apology has been around, um, you know, some of that past writing and being like, this doesn't, I'm not super proud of how this came across, you know, maybe it was really singular in centering, um, you know, saying, oh, we're talking about feminism, but only talking about a white woman's experience or a cisgender woman's experience. Um, So some of that has been sort of creative apologies or acknowledgements even of of learning and growth. Um, And otherwise, I think that in in more like workplace settings it's been practicing even in moments that aren't really weighted you know or or that don't seem as serious that that process of saying like hey i messed up i want to hear about your experience um i was thinking this might be a way we can move forward together what do you need from me to build trust you know and at this point the fellow guide is like you just cut one too many tomatoes, Emerald, like it's not a big deal. We don't, we don't need to go through this whole thing. Um, but sometimes I think practicing those, those sort of full authentic apologies in spaces that feel less charged can then make them feel more comfortable and fluid when it is something big that really needs to be addressed, like a racial microaggression or um, you know, saying something homophobic or whatever it might be that you need to apologize for. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah. So it seems like um, a lot of folks that I've noticed are just scared to step into a hard conversation because they're so awkward and don't know how to apologize, um, you know, and, and having compassion for themselves too, right? And acknowledging that, hey, I fucked up and here's how I'm going to move forward. Right? So what are your experiences um, and perspectives on social justice and racial justice um, in the outdoor space? I think what I've seen in in fly fishing and whitewater in a lot of the outdoor industry as a whole is this idea of exceptionalism, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, we don't have to talk about social justice because um, we don't have racism here. We don't have homophobia here. It's just fly fishing. It's supposed to be fun, right? Like how many times have you heard that of like, why are you making it political? Why are you taking the fun out of XYZ, a whitewater boating day, a fly fishing, film fest, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I think what that misses is the fact that the outdoor industry, fly fishing industry, whitewater boating industry are are formed from humans in community together, right? And anytime you have humans in community together, especially under, um, you know, a lot of the dominant culture norms we have, you're going to have social justice issues. And for a long time, I think the outdoor industry was able to be like just homogenous and toxic enough to not acknowledge it. So it feels like this new thing of like, oh, all of a sudden social justice is relevant to these spaces. But in fact, it's always been relevant. It's only now that um, that we're starting to move into that. And I think that I see sometimes this idea of like, um, I think sometimes outdoor folks, maybe I'm speaking specifically from the guide perspective, which I know you know from your time, you know, doing the the whitewater guiding, um, that the outdoor community can really see itself as like renegades and like, oh, I'm not like the rest of society. We're different here. Um, and sometimes that then blocks the ability to learn from what the rest of the country, the rest of, um, you know, your state, your community, et cetera, is discussing because you think, oh, well, they're not, 
anglers, so they can't possibly have something to say to me. And, and so I'm really grateful for the folks that do sort of translate into the outdoor community um, through their work. And I also think we could do a better job of admitting that there might be somebody who's not a great angler, but maybe knows a lot about um, creating just and equitable workplaces that we can learn from. And it doesn't matter if they know how to catch an 18 inch brown trout or not, they have something to teach us about being in human community together. Yeah, thank you for that. That was a wonderful overview of, um, you know, we're not part of society because we can escape society. And that's why we go fishing almost, you know, and we're kind of bringing our biases and perspectives out on the water as well and kind of creating that unintentional um, and unconscious harm as well. So yeah, a big lesson is, is, you know, really just acknowledgement, I think, over the last year. And um, what have you personally dealt with when it comes to folks resisting um, any type of acceptance and acknowledgement? Yeah, I think it's come, um, it comes up in sort of this like scarcity Mm -hmm. mindset within the outdoor dream job type space of, um, you know, and you see this at all these different intersections, you see it with the kind of classic like white cisgender male 40 year old able-bodied guy being like, um, well, we don't have time to talk about that at this outfitter conference because we need to talk about tag allocation and drought and wildfire. And there's these things that feel like pressing, we have to do this now. Um, And of course, social justice issues and equity diversity issues are um, equally as pressing and and I think are starting to express themselves as such and gain more attention. Um, But I think that overall what I've seen is this idea of like, we don't have time for that. And some of that is really, you know, comes back to the fact that something like guiding or, you know, maybe working in a fly shop, being part of the industry is not really even particularly sustainable for your average, like classic fly shop bro. Um, and, and it can be a pretty toxic work environment across the board. Uh, so I think there's a feeling of like, well, this is barely, it's this hierarchy mm-hmm. um, that then white women also play into, right? Of like, oh, well, once gender's figured out, quote unquote, Um, then we can talk about these other intersections instead of kind of inverting that and starting from this idea that everyone should be welcome in these, these types of recreation. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think of like a specific example, but it's just a general dismissal and this, um, this feeling of like, stop being annoying, stop being, um, you know, stop being such a buzzkill, you hear that a lot, right? Like, why do you always have to be so serious? Um, which I guess yeah. we could unpack or we could leave be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I just, yeah, I've heard that. I hear that a lot and we're just fishing. I like everybody, you know, I'm not the bad person. I, I, I accept everybody, right? <laughs> and that's really well intended, but you know, <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it's an interesting line and interesting balance there of folks that um, presume, you know, themselves as, as really accessible and inclusive and, hey, I'm not the problem here, but really how often do we take the time to even acknowledge that that statement is a problem and that you really are the problem by not addressing these things, so. There's huge blind spots, right? There's <laughs> genuine blind spots where which then brings in a really interesting, like messy conversation about like whose job, quote unquote, again, is it to bring forth that that vision and that seeing, but I'm thinking back to a time I was at a Outfitters and Guides conference and um, it was sort of right around when Me Too was really getting um, a lot of attention and they brought in a journalist to talk about sexual harassment and assault on the river um, through sort of a gender lens. And after this talk, I was standing around with maybe three or four other um, women guides who were rather high up in their seniority um, and maybe an equal amount of, of men outfitters and senior guides. And um, these guys who were like, you know, 
friends who spend a lot of time with us, who are out on the river with us. And one of them said, um, well, that's never happened. Like that's never happened to you. Right. Uh, and it was this huge aha moment for me where I was like, wow, they're not even, we're not even, we're not discussing this as a community because a big part of our community doesn't see this. Some of that, you know, we sometimes choose what to see and what not to see based on what makes us feel awkward, uncomfortable, etc. But I think that, um, that that is when like com true community and storytelling and connection communication becomes really important to moving, moving these conversations forward into action and accountability. Yeah, 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 thank you for that. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I have often seen companies that wanna just fix everything right away and have re a diversity in their guides and also their clients. And I think just kind of having that <laughs> understanding of, hey, our guides might, might not be changing, but our, our clients are, right? Um, that's a really good perspective shift. So um, when I guided in California, it, we got a lot of folks from the Bay Area um, and a lot of folks from India that would come up, you know, on their vacation um, in the Bay Area and whatnot. And I was always so embarrassed by the way guides would talk. And it was just like no cultural awareness whatsoever. And they didn't care, right? Because if, to them, it was just a paycheck, a day on the water, right? <laughs> grab your, at the time, I think it was 80 bucks a day, you know, plus tips and, you know, then you get to go to the bar at night and that's your life, right? Repeat. <laughs> so, you know, it, at no point is there any awareness of how they're actually treating people, you know, whether that's in the boat, on the shuttle, um, how we're doing our safety talks are fully, you know, are we actually understanding that there's a relationship here at some degree, right? Part of my background and path into multi-day guiding was daily guiding and that culture mm. of, you know, big swims, big lines, big drinking at the bars afterwards, just um, kind of live fast. The road goes on forever. The party never ends culture. Um, and both within the guide crew and then with the customer experience, you see the way that that really connects with some folks and then really pushes others out and there's so many different ways to be on the water. Some people love big whitewater swims, some folks don't, just like you said, and and creating spaces, whether it's for the guides or for the guests that um, that sort of capture as much experience as possible. It's not just, again, the right thing to do, it's also good business. Like you're going to have more great reviews if you're able to take care of a wider range of people. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. Interesting how basic that is too. <laughs> feels basic, feels basic, but hard to change culture, as we know. <laughs> Quick note that I wanted to ask you um, that I haven't put in our outline. Um, are you currently sober? Is that part of your daily routine also? Yeah, I was. I spent my whole, um, I just turned 30 at the end of May and spent my whole 29th year not drinking sober. It was a really, um, yeah, really interesting experience, especially within the context of some of the different outdoor sports that, um, that I do throughout the seasons. It yeah. was, yeah, it was fascinating. So now I'm drinking again with sort of different mm. intention and, and framework around it. Yeah. Uh, that's really awesome. Yeah. There's a lot of clarity and a lot of, um, uh, yeah, of just your own, your habits, and to just kind of walking away from um, having a different lens, I guess, <laughs> how that looks. Yeah, like. cool. For me, I think part of it was proving like I had never worked a multi day trip on the water as a guide without drinking. Yeah. Um, every once in a while, you know, like sometimes I would get hung over and then the next night be like, no, nah, I think I'm just going to stick to LaCroix, but had never done, uh, you know, a six day trip. And it's a real part of that culture, especially, well, I think pretty much throughout whitewater and fly fishing, but especially on those crews where you're out for six days, often a, a beer or a cocktail becomes this sort of one moment of rest within a really busy day where you're working from, you know, sun up 6am till 10 p.m. when dishes are done and put away. Um, you sort of never stop moving, but that 
that beer cocktail can be such a, a beacon of connection with your fellow crewmates. It's a like this moment of rest, even though you're chopping carrots for salad or, you know, helping a guest find the toilet system or whatever uh, guide things you might be doing. So it was really, for me personally, it was sort of proving to myself that I could do all these different things, whether it was a private trip on the South Fork Snake with my partner just going out to fish for fun or a six day Middle Fork trip, that I could do those things without alcohol and and sort of I was just curious about how they would land different how the community would react to it mm. um, and there's a great I want to recommend um, Emily Holland is doing a podcast series called Nature Untold where she's really gathering a lot of these different voices from um, from the outdoor community who are exploring their relationship to alcohol rather whether they're completely sober sober curious um, she's she's doing a great job kind of capturing those experiences. Yeah, I got to meet Emily. Um, she connected with me because I was like, I want to start a podcast, but I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> so she set up a Zoom call and answered all of my questions. So I'm forever grateful for, for Emily and um, her podcast is awesome as well. So yeah, That's awesome. bringing that up. Yeah, cool. All right. So switching gears a little bit, I remember, um, I think it was almost a year ago, um, Pride Month. I remember, you know, in your feed and whatnot that you came out as bisexual. And so what was that experience like for you to to come out and what does that mean to you? Yeah, um, coming out was really scary, Erica. And I didn't think, you know, I can like boat class for whitewater and like face down a rattlesnake. And I've definitely done some scary things in my life. Um, and it was, it was unexpectedly like in my nervous system, fight or flight response, scary. And I think some of that, you know, I, I was really, I don't know what, if the word would be fortunate, privileged, um, set up well in that my family of origin, super understanding, no big deal to them, um, had a great community around me that was sort of you know, flipping, if anything about it, like, okay, cool. You you know, you want to go to the next hole and keep fishing. Um, And so a lot of, like, was in a really good context to come out to sort of my, my direct community and not feel like I was going to have, you know, financial setbacks or community setbacks or professional setbacks, even. Um, What I was most scared about was honestly, rejection from the LGBTQ community. I was really worried. I'm a, you know, bisexual woman, but white cisgender um, and in a long-term monogamous relationship with a heterosexual cisgender man. Uh, And for a lot of years, even that's, I sort of began to understand the bisexuality even came out to some of my, my direct community, but it felt I felt like I might be unnecessarily taking up space within that LGBTQ plus community to sort of assert that bisexuality and celebrate it in a more um, forward facing way. And uh, up until, you know, at least up until now, those fears have been completely unfounded. It's been an incredibly like warm, generative, positive experience. And, um, and that's on, me for not giving, uh, not that we can speak about the LGBTQ community as like a monolith of like the great monolith community stamped (laughs) approval, you know, like there's all sorts of different uh, folks and experiences and perceptions there, but overall it's been this really supportive, um, positive thing. And, And it's also a on, there's a lot of ongoingness in it of like, continuing to dig into different parts of identity and better understand them and shed, you know, I have a lot of internalized homophobia, mm-hmm. even growing up in a, in a relatively progressive place in Idaho. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so just watching and noticing as that comes up and saying, huh, do we really want to keep this? And mm-hmm. grappling through some of that has been a big, big part of it as well. Um, but I think that the, the community that's formed around that part of my identity has been really 
special and valuable and also has given me, you know, since then I've had multiple friends and other folks in my community say like, hey, it turns out I'm bisexual too or pansexual or queer or non-binary and being able to like celebrate that has been really, I think we often, especially in states like Idaho and places like rural Idaho, we talk about queer identity for all the negatives and there's certainly negatives increasingly so um, depending on how your identity expresses outwardly. Uh, but there's also so much like goodness in it. And I, I underestimated what it would feel like to sort of stand, stand uh, out and proud in, in all that goodness. That rejection piece, particularly from the community that you're looking to kind of outwardly be part of, I, I never really thought of it that way. I've always kind of struggled with the term queer because um, I grew up with, um, it was a negative connotation, you know, it was, it was a slur and um, not in a good way. And so I have a hard time identifying as such, but um, yeah, you know, I, I always find that interesting of, com- of the concept coming out and how colonial is it, you know, to have to be able to come out versus just, you know, automatically being accepted. So like your sexuality is a bodily thing to begin with and listening to your sort of bodily response when the words come up. I'm that way, like with um, pansexual as a term and also figuring out when your body response is a internalized homophobia and when it's just your like true essence and gut, that's a whole nother thing. But for me, for a lot of, because I I consider bisexuality for me as being attracted to all genders, men, uh, women, non-binary, it's sort of a, it's the person um, person, not the label approach. And so I really had to spend some time with like, is bisexuality playing into the gender binary? And I'm really trying to move away from in my thinking and also in some of my outward expressions of my work. Um, and, and so currently fall within the idea of like bisexuality is more of a umbrella term where, you know, it's, it's, um, it includes pansexuality, queerness, sort of a full range. Uh, and I'm also always open to being like changing my mind, right? Or having somebody be like, hey, this is why bisexuality as a term and this word is super harmful to you know trans folks in our community or non-binary folks in my, our community, in which case I'd be like, all right, you know, pansexual it is or postmodern sexuality it is like you, but initially, I think finding those those terms, as long as they're not harming someone else that you're claiming and, and being in community with, um, they kind of light you up and, and feel right. And ultimately, the label, you know, I think labels are for ourselves, but they're also so much more like shorthand for other people, yeah. right? So that when people are like, oh, you identify as, some, as part of the LGBTQ plus community, what is that? For you, you can say, oh, I'm bisexual, rather than being like, well, <laughs> do you have 25 minutes? Because I'd really like to like run you through where I am. And I love seeing, you know, again, I'm I'm um, just 30. So having these really fun for, like experiences of now getting to, there's this whole another generation coming up, you know, behind us that have all these different norms and expectations and learning so much from their approach to, um, to LGBTQ plus identity and, and really seeing it move towards more of a fluid labelless um, thing. While also, and this is when I just start turning myself in circles, while also acknowledging that those labels help, you know, can be really grounding and important for folks and not wanting to, to minimize that because the experience of a, you know, of a bisexual cisgender woman is really different from that of a trans bisexual man or, you know, a non-binary person. It's, I think you just have to, for, for me, I always get so frustrated when people are like, oh, pronouns, I can't figure that out. Or like, oh, it's weird. I don't want to figure it out. And I'm like, why, where's your curiosity about life? Like, this is cool. This is interesting. This is humans learning how to be in new relationship with themselves and other humans like it's not a 
bad, scary thing, folks. <laughs> but, um, you know, we've yeah. got a lot of culture to swim through to get to that place of curiosity and not, not to minimize the weight of that swim. Yeah, yeah, totally. I truly believe that it's kind of going back to Indigenous cultures and, yes. and customs of that fluidity. And I find it beautiful, especially as you were saying with younger generations, you know, being comfortable and, and, and having fun with their identity, right? And kind of dismantling that whole colonized viewpoint. And I, I, I find it very beautiful as well. So yeah. yeah. That's a great, that's a great note too, because I think sometimes um, being a white person and, and sort of, you know, I guess being in that, that uh, community or culture where we're often like, guess what? Great idea. Sexuality fluid. <laughs> like I'm the first one who's ever thought of this. And it's like, well, no, actually, uh, this has been around forever. We've just been, you know, stamping it into assimilation with these white dominant, white supremacist um, cultures. And, and I think that reminder is so important and, and touches on a lot of different ways of like, we don't always need to like, and aren't reinventing or recreate like we're not creating these things from scratch we we can look around but sometimes you have to look outside of your direct experience to to learn more and unlearn etc totally yeah so how can the um fishing and boater community support lgbtq plus individuals more yeah that's i think there's there's so many ways maybe first grounded in, um, you know, listening to the LGBTQ plus folks that are already in your community. They're already there, whether they're comfortable being out with you or not. Um, but I think that I also want to emphasize like a lot of LGBTQ plus uh, community issues are based on policy and legislation and access and like a great way to support LGBTQ plus community is to vote with them in mind and to encourage other folks to do so. And not just vote, but use your, you know, I really see, especially within the guiding industry, but also as fly fishing as an industry grows and really grows a voice, like you have leverage, not just when you go secretly to turn in your ballot, but also in the, um, the ways you speak up and the pressure you put on your elected officials through lobbying um, and, and ultimately like we can't, we also can as an outdoor industry say like, oh, well, we'll just take care of our little, you know, we'll just get, take care of our little eight person guide crew, making a really good culture. And then we'll be able to have more queer folks on our staff, um, or people of color on our staff or, you know, whatever that diversity checkbox as they often approach it as are you also are looking at like, okay, where's this outfitter based? Like they're based in, in Salmon, Idaho, which is not a super welcoming community. Um, and, and where your staff are gonna experience a lot of microaggression when they go to the grocery store to shop for a trip. Like you can't just see yourself as this little bubble. You're also accountable to the broader community that the outdoors exist within or adjacent to. Um, so I think policy and legislation are huge. That's always at the top of my brain, especially in a state like Idaho, um, which is super harmful to the LGBTQ community in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Um, and I also think of supporting affinity spaces, but not centering yourself in them, um, is a great way for whitewater and fly fishing to continue to support LGBTQ folks. Um, I think when you look at like mental health outcomes, for example, for LGBTQ plus youth. Um, I know for me, like going out and fly fishing by myself is one of the best things beyond uh, time with a licensed therapist <laughs> that I can do for myself. And, and so those creating space for those experiences in a way that center the LGBTQ community rather than um, you know, doing it as like a rainbow flag photo shoot sort of thing, I think are, is really important. Um, I love like what Queers in Camo 
has been doing within the fly fishing and hunting space, for example. Uh, and, you know, the, running those organizations takes money, it takes time. How can you put your money where your mouth is in supporting affinity spaces rather than just like tagging on Instagram? Um, and I think another huge one is shutting down microaggression, mm -hmm. macroaggression, like shut down the shitty jokes. Like if you have to make um, a crappy joke about a gay person or lesbian woman to be quote unquote funny, you're not funny, like try harder. And there's, it's one thing when I shut that down and I will, you know, at this point in my career, say if I'm out guiding or, or even recreationally, I'll be like, yeah, it's not, you know, cut it out. Um, but for better or worse, that with my power dynamic and, and role within the community, that doesn't always go as far as the big man on campus outfitter or senior guide that all the 18, 19 year olds look up to shutting it down. Um, and that stuff seems really small and inconsequential, but can be huge as far as shifting culture and creating a safe space to then feel like you can have the bigger conversations when a guest starts harassing you because of your gender, sexuality, identity. Um, but I think the biggest thing is just to like, listen and be curious and be willing to change and shift and remember that there's a lot of goodness to be had. Like, I think people see it as like, oh, support if I support the LGBTQ community, it's gonna make us all PC and we're gonna be boring. I'm like, I don't know if y'all know this, but queer people are so fun to stereotype and be, you know, like, of course we're all individuals, but there's, there's nothing but gain, I think, mm -hmm. from making our fly fishing and whitewater and outdoor industries more mm -hmm. equitable and just. It's just, it doesn't seem like it should be that hard. Yeah. That's a really great list and, and great ways to be allies, you know, and really just tangible action is through policy, voting, legislation. So yeah, I, I love that. And then also, I would say one of the main most awkward thing in, in anything that you will do, I feel like is shutting down microaggressions. <laughs> that is so hard um, to be you know, that's that whole label, right, of the buzzkill, right? And I love that you said if you need to make a homophobic joke, you're not funny. So yeah, try harder. I like that. But really just standing up and bringing it up, right? Even if it is later in time has passed. Um, and especially the being the head guide, right? Watching them shut down microaggressions is super impactful, which I never see. I would love to see more more men, more hetero white men, really kind of standing up a lot more versus leaving it to us, right? Or I'm always the person of color to speak up about, hey, that actually could be construed as racist, right? And as a woman, right? I'm sure you've dealt with that as well in, in different areas um, of context. But yeah, I would really love to see more, more and more support from um, the dominant community um, in these spaces. And it seems like there was a person that had tried, right? A recent-ish article that was written in February this year, it was about, um, I think it was uh, Because Our Words Matter, Sexual Violence in the Fly Fishing Industry, where they were talking about um, kind of calling out sexual violence and the name within flies. So the example that they used was sex dungeon, for example, and how are they going to explain it to their children, right? And then it kind of, it was kind of an interesting article. Um, do you remember that? And what was your take on that? Yeah, that article was fascinating. Um, in some ways, it felt like, like when, uh, when water scientists put like dye into a body of water and then like watch it flow through a, you know, it sort of felt like that. The article itself was one thing, but watching it sort of flow through the fly fishing community was another really fascinating part of that moment. And um, I think I took note of it when our our little local fly shop here shared it. And that's when I was like, oh, this thing must be getting, you know, a lot of attention <laughs> if it's showing up on our, our uh, Facebook page at this town of 3000's little fly shop. Um, but I think that the for me, the article landed 
like this thing happens when you're guiding. I guide mostly um, dry dry fly fishing for cutthroat and you'll be like coming up to a spot and you like get your guest ready, you know, and you're like, okay, here's a good spot. And you sort of prep them for the whole thing and they put their fly down and it looks like it's tracking pretty well. And then sometimes guess I do this too when I fish, honestly, uh, you know, cause just whatever whim gets into you, they'll like pull the fly away, like right as it's getting into the good spot or they'll just like bungle it or do a weird mend. Mm-hmm. And the fish wants nothing to do with the fly. This article felt a little bit like that where I was like, oh, you were like, <laughs> this was really close, right? Like this was a good, this was almost <laughs> there. This was good intention. Like I could tell you really wanted to catch that fish. Um, you were, you know, you were gonna let it go if you did catch it, but there's so much, like it, it kind of needed a good edit and didn't get one. Um, and as someone who started, I think I started blogging in 2009, mm-hmm. um, get it. Where sometimes you're just like writing a little blog and you post it and then all of a sudden it goes viral and you're like, Ooh, I might wanna take you know some of that back. Um, but I think it, yeah, it just brought up a lot of interesting um, elements about the community <clears throat> and the way that we talk about some of these issues within the community. Um, I don't, I don't even know where to start with the, is there a like particular topic within there you want to start with? How did it land for you? Where did you first so, see it? So I actually, I, I saw it being circulated as well. And I actually think it was from, from you. Um, for, you know, when I see someone, when I started seeing it circulated around, you know, meme accounts, that's kind of not credible, right? So whatever. And then I start to see it around more men. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then a couple of women that I trust and, you know, respect and I love their content started following or sharing it. And I was like, okay. And yeah, it was, you described that feeling so well of just missed it, right? You just, you had a, you were doing really good intentions and bringing awareness to a space that in, in a, in a dark corner that needs to be a light shine on that I think when I first got into fly fishing, that was probably one of the most immediate observations I've had was the names, you know, it kind of made me think about rock climbing names as well and how, you know, there's a project going on of changing racist names and, um, you know, toxic um, type of um, derogatory names, you know, so, you know, we were not ready to talk about it as a fly fishing community um, ever. I think when there's any sort of change to the dominant culture, it's going to ruffle all kinds of feathers. And um, even kind of, you know, it's kind of that, um, I like how you said exceptionalism, you know, at the beginning of, hey, that's not us, you know, we're the good guys, we do this to escape to in order to go back to society and be better, right? We don't perpetuate harm in any way. And, you know, so one of the things I've noticed was the general thoughts about names like barely legal, sex dungeon, Montreal whore, right? Or very derogatory. And it kind of does go back to that. You're not funny, right? (laughs) Maybe you should try a little bit harder um, is kind of what what I kind of think of. Yeah. They're great flies, right? Like the fly, the sex dungeon fly itself is a great fly. And so it's sort of like the joke where it's like, well, did you really need to name it? sex dungeon to sell it like probably not it's a good streamer it catches trout um but I think what what's really interesting about the way this was what I first noticed in the way this was framed was how um sort of like the puritanical hand ringing around it was really awkward it sort of reminded me of maybe to use another metaphor of when um like this thing started happening where on, on these pretty tight knit guide crews, um, guys were starting to like listen more, understand that women get harassed by guests pretty often on these crews. Women and non-binary folks are getting harassed. And um, their response was to like, when they saw that happening, kind of do the the like little sister thing, you might call it, of um, jumping in to be like, I'll save you and protect you. Maybe it's the superhero thing. I'll save you. I'll protect you. I'll take care of it. I'm so mad. I'm going to beat that guy up, which is again, like the intent is nice of like, wow, I'm so glad you care about me and you want to um, protect me in this space, but doesn't always serve like keeping 
you as the person who's been harassed in your power and, and able to move through the rest of maybe a six day trip. Um, and it was kind of a similar feel here of like, uh, this is gross and wrong. And I'm like, there was just a lot of hand wringing and centering of personal experience in the first couple of paragraphs that made it hard to, um, to continue digging in. And then I think it's important also, there's some of the names like barely legal. I'm kind of like, you know, let's send that one to the archives forever. Um, yeah. But when you start talking about, uh, you know, sex dungeon or pearl necklace or um, even a whore, right? That's a derogatory term. Uh, but I think that our, I know my perceptions of sex work have really changed and that's been something I've been unlearning and relearning. None of those things are necessarily inherently wrong. Yeah. What's wrong is the, the sort of application of them within the fly fishing industry and the broader undertones of misogyny and dominant culture that, that permeate fly fishing. So, and, and one thing that really was an interesting contrast was that, you know, it's something you can walk into a fly shop. I walked into a fly shop up in Missoula just a week ago. And even though I think technically the manufacturers are changing a lot of the Kelly Gallup fly names now, um, you still walk into your local fly shop and it's still going to be called a sex dungeon and a barely legal. Um, but what's interesting is the kind of the double standard there, right? Where like Kelly is allowed to name these flies in sort of these risque, I think an article referred to them as bodacious names. It's like, that's a nice, that's nice way of framing that bodacious. Um, and yet when we, I think it was four or five years ago now with Orvis with support from Jackie and Chrissy and um, NRS when we made just this short, fun, ship fly fishing gal say video that centered a bunch of women guides in the Montana area. Um, there was one scene where uh, one of the guides was like pretending to sit in the water and pee and say like, I am peeing. And the comment section for that was all about how we were you know, ruining the honor of fly fishing and how gross we were being and how there was no room for cuss words in fly fishing and sort of all of this like holier than thou stuff. Um, and so I think, you know, I envision a, a fly fishing industry where like consenting adults can, maybe there can be a fly named a sex dungeon, but we're not, we're so far from that fly fishing industry, you know, because you walk into the shop, the flies named the sex dungeon, the bearded cisgender white dude behind the counter is trying to mansplain, um, you know, fly lines to you. Like, it's just, you're going, you're logging into uh, YouTube and watching fly fishing videos that are making fun of, you know, women or any number of underrepresented identities. Like, we're just not to the point where it's funny. <laughs> um, and I hope that someday it can be a part of that because adults can and shouldn't do have sex and can and do shouldn't do have sex in whatever way they want, as long as, again, it's truly consensual. Um, I also think that, like we were talking about fly names five years ago, seven years ago, and this article a little bit it was interesting how it felt like a conversation we'd already had um, and yet was so received by the community. And, you know, you look at the comments on that blog post and it's all like, you're so brave. Thanks for talking about this. <laughs> Which, <laughs> uh, I don't know. All I could do was laugh, mm -hmm. but that was probably the mood I was in that day. <laughs> yeah, same. Yeah, I couldn't have said that more eloquently. Um, and, you know, part of that was saying, like, do you know what sex dungeons are? They're bad. There's things that bad, you know, things that happen in them. And I'm like, mm, I've had some pretty good times in a sex dungeon before and it was consensual. And there are communities out there that are open about their um, preferences. And, you know, as long as it's consenting, why, how, why are we judging? And I get that you know, 
that that is not a terrible name, but the way that we talk about it and the way that we're trying, you know, that the article is saying that that is all bad, right? And I don't think that there's that moral question that needs to be in that, um, you know, with some of those names. Um, however, I, you know, agreed with some of the other ones, you know, um, poor and barely legal and um, how those can just be, can just go away <laughs> for sure. But how much are we actually educating ourselves and understanding that there are communities out there and sex work that, um, you know, is is out there and, and should be respected and treated like any other type of profession. And, you know, there's a lot of jokes that go out towards sex workers and, and that type of um, industry. And, you know, it, it is an industry and it is a way that people make income and can do it legally or, you know, consensually at least. And so yeah. I'm all for supporting <laughs> sex work and, and, and talking about it in a respectful manner, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, too, one thing I've grappled with that this article brought up. So first you have the article, which it's kind of like, ooh, great swing, Jay, like, keep it up. You obviously have a lot of folks listening to you who respect you and care about what you think. Like, keep, I guess I would just hope that he would like keep going keep digging in mm-hmm. admit or not admit but like maybe explore some of the if you do learn some of the ways maybe this didn't land great like lean into it you're not we're not canceling jay right like seems yeah. like a well-intentioned guy um but what was the second part of what was really interesting is watching it flow through all these sort of online fly fishing conversations and one thing that it brought up that i think often happens in these women's fly fishing groups in particular, of which we've just seen exponential growth over the last five years, um, is is two things. One is the, uh, well, Kelly's a really great guy mm-hmm. argument, Kelly Gallup being the, the fly designer for a lot of these bodacious fly names. Um, he's a really great guy as one thing that comes up. And the second thing that comes up being um, well, I don't mind. I don't mind those fly names because I can be just as gross and foul humored as any guy. Um, and those are. It's interesting to watch them surface because I've like I feel like I've personally navigated both of those framings when these conversations come up, and I've probably used both of those framings at some point and really spent some time like dismantling that and thinking about the way that lands with, um, you know, the folks that are most vulnerable within our fly fishing communities, which maybe was me at 19, but is no longer me at 30 with, you know, work and an audience and and sort of everything I need to be fine here. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was interesting to watch those two, two things come up. I think that if, we explore the like, Kelly's a great guy. It's sort of like, well, I don't know him at all. You know, I've never had a conversation with him. I'm sure folks have different um, different perceptions of that, but just because you've been nice to someone doesn't mean that you all of your actions are positive or that even you should continue to market these flies under that name, like it's okay to change. Um, I don't know, how did that one land for you? Um, the, I mean, I kind of, it's like super similar, you know, I think that, um, the whole, I mean, we're, we're, we're all good people, <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. everyone's <laughs> a great person. Everyone's a nice person. Right. And we're even going to tell ourselves that narrative until the day we die. Right. <laughs> like, we're all good people. And I am just overhearing that. Um, and I'm on the basis of understanding that we all are. It's kind of saying that everyone's a bad driver except yourself. You know, it's never you. <laughs> so I think that a lot more um, self-awareness and self-reflection is missing in these spaces and even about our perceptions of other people um, because of one thing they've done. Um, they're always nice. <laughs> and so just kind of rooting more in, um, in, in focusing on impact, right? And and how is this going to impact, you know, um, not only the community, but I also like how you mentioned, you gave a really good visual for me of, hey, these people are coming into our community and it's not just this tight knit 
a group of eight people, right? They are going shopping, right? They're eating out, they're doing all these things. And when you're in the community of fly fishing, you know, you might think that you're just one individual with no role whatsoever, you know, and you're the nice person moving about your world. But, you know, how are you actually impacting the greater industry as a whole by, you know, um, by, um, you know, the purchases that you make, right? The decisions that you, that you, that you make and the relationships that you build. So just kind of thinking of that more holistically and getting rid of the narrative of they're a nice person, right? Oh, they're a good guy. Yeah. I think that focus on impact is, is, um, spot on and being okay with changing. Like there are jokes I made at 19 that I would never make again. And if people, if somebody was like, hey, when you said this joke when you were 19, it was really harmful to me, I would, Mm -hmm. you know, go through the like apology process and really try to reflect on that and do what I could at this moment, if there was anything to minimize the harm and not go into a crazy guilt spiral and also not pretend it hadn't happened. Um, And those fly names strike me that way a little bit of like, yeah, you named these before. Um, not before sexual harassment, because that's been happening forever, uh, harassment, assault, rape in these spaces. But um, before we were having that conversation, but it's okay to admit like, hey, this name hasn't aged. Um, because again, they're good flies. Yeah, most of them. Um, so <laughs> let the fly stand for itself. But I think that the, I don't know, when I think about the you know if I imagine like wow what fly shop in a in a ideal universe would I love to walk into right it's like I want to walk into a um a LGBTQ plus owned fly shop where there's a rainbow flag behind the counter and sure there's a sex dungeon fly and a pearl necklace fly but there's also a you know whatever the foul names that all the women in the fly fishing groups come up with to counter these names. Like, yeah, there's a couple, there's an adults only section that's too high for the kiddos to see or reach. We can all laugh about it as adults um, and, and have that be part of this community, not sex shame people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I would like to move towards that, but again, I don't, I don't think we're, there's so much, work to do and work that we've ignored when it comes to um, this industry that yeah. a fly name, that vision is not worth more than our reality we have now for me. Um, and to me, it just doesn't seem that hard to get rid of the fly name. Totally agree. <laughs> totally. And I like your vision for moving forward. That would be epic. <laughs> so I'm on board. <laughs> I think it'll happen. Yeah. Hopefully <laughs> soon, hopefully soon, but you know, you can't rush these things. <laughs> okay. So final question. Um, well, I guess almost final ish. Um, tell me about your style of fishing. Um, what does the best day on the water look like for you? That's a great question. I feel like a little bit of a fishing omnivore. Like I just am sort of endlessly fascinated by fish and all the different places you can catch them, all the different ways to catch them. Um, Guiding, I love, I think it's really hard to beat cutthroat rising for foam dry flies. It's just, I know it's basic, but it's such a fun entry point for fly fishing. And not only is it an entry point, it's also something that I just feel like I could do until I was 95 and still be having fun getting to watch a a trout come up for a you know big foam fly Mm -hmm. Uh, something really special um but I also love you know like we were just down on Hills Canyon of the Snake fishing uh using gear rods fishing poppers for bass which is like whatever the polar opposite of dry fly fishing for trout is um and it was so fun you know I think what the ideal day of fishing for me is a day that teaches me something new about a place and and sort of um and introduces me to that place as far as an ecosystem and a landscape um but the ideal day of fishing is also to me fishing is about community um it's either about community or self-reflection I love to fish 
totally alone um, and love the time that gives me to slow down. We talked a lot about pace and building time for reflection. I think fishing is a great opportunity for that, uh, really sort of meditative and, and important for that. And if I'm not alone, I want to be with, um, you know, community. And to me, the, the people in that experience is usually more important than the type of fish or the size of fish or how I catch them. Yeah, totally. That's awesome. Is there, um, is there a way that folks can maybe reach you? I know that you do, do a lot of great work um, <clears throat> writing and um, a lot of different media type stuff. And yeah, um, how do you want people to connect with you and um, where can they find you? <laughs> sure. Um, you can find me. I mean, pretty much I live in a small enough town that if you end up here, you could probably <laughs> just track me down through word of mouth. Only running into people from Instagram. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Uh, my dog will probably be at the ply shop so you can just follow him home um otherwise you can find me emeraldbefortune.com um the two main mediums i use right now are a newsletter which you can sign up for there that's really been i've sort of moved away from blogging and more into the newsletter space which has been a really fun way to kind of have conversations build build community um and the other space i'm active is instagram and you can find me at Emerald Lens Media. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. And um, it's been awesome hearing about your perspective on um, many different topics. So <laughs> we covered a lot, um, which I'm really um, grateful for. And thanks for sharing your perspective. So um, great. Um, it's good to be in community with you. <laughs> you too, Erica. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Head over to awkwardangler.com for show notes and resources. You can send appreciations by subscribing, sharing with a friend, rating the podcast, or Venmo at Awkward Angler. Special thanks to my brown folks fishing family for your support. I'm Erica Nelson, inviting you to be an awkward angler. See you next week.